Well, as usual, church, good morning to you, and it is a, uh, a pleasure and a blessing to be able to be up here and uh, to bring God's Word to you again. Um, as I go into the Old New Testament readings, I would ask that you would just take time to reflect, really, on God's Word, let God's Word have its full effect, hear the words that the Lord has for us on this Sunday, on this Lord's Day. So let us hear now the reading of God's Word, the Old Testament passage today comes from Isaiah 54. Lord's word says this, sing O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will not forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, the Lord says, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, says the Lord, shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife... With you shall be shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produced a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravenger to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Let us give now attention to our New Testament passage and the passage for the sermon today. And it comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Lord's word says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for it, for that which we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thus far the reading of God's word. Pray with me, church. Father God, I thank you for all that you give, Lord. Just the ability to come up here and to read your word, Father, is in itself a blessing, Lord. I thank you for your provision, Lord, that you give to your church. I thank you for the provision that you give through the functions of the church that we are able to come together, Lord, weekly, being reminded and reflecting upon your word. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open, Lord, that our hearts would hear what it is that you have for us, Lord. I pray specifically, Lord, that our hearts would be comforted, especially in relationship to the specific text that we are going over today. May we be comforted, Lord, by the one, the only true one who can comfort our hearts, Lord, in all things and in all circumstances. We thank you again for Christ and the comfort he brings. We thank you for your church and the comfort that she brings. And I thank you for this time now, Lord. May you bless the preaching of your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. I hope, church, that you had a good week. As Phil mentioned earlier, this uh, previous week was the start of a new school year, the beginning of the school year. It's a very interesting time. It's an interesting season of the year. Um, A lot of that is because so much of our society really revolves uh, around the school calendar. From school supplies taking up several rows in retail stores to the unavoidable traffic that we all run into at those particular times of the day as families are working out new routes and schedules around their child going to school. The school year is the unofficial marker from the transition of summer into fall. And each year at the start of the new school year, school calendar, one of the things that I personally enjoy the most is a new sense of beginning that comes along with the new school season. Being involved in education most of my adult life, most of my life in general, I've always found that the beginning of school really brings about a renewed sense of order. Uh, A new sense of order, especially after the inevitable disorderliness of the preceding summer. Those of you in education probably know what I'm talking about. New routines are established, schedules are implemented, and I'm often refreshed, often, after a restful summer break. And though the routines and schedules of a new school year do bring this renewed sense of order, it seems that no matter how hard I try every single year, though each year I do slightly better, that orderliness does not seem to last long. The days I had originally planned to go to the gym often need to be skipped for other events that take precedence. A bedtime routine for the kids that I had planned to be complete by 8 p.m. slowly creeps closer to the 9 o'clock hour, and those times that I had carved out for one thing quickly seem to be devoured by the needs of another. Thus begins the battle of consistency, discipline and diligence in order to keep my schedule in its proper place. I'm sure, church, that all of you, most of you, no, I'm quite sure all of you, can relate 
For whether we're in the school session or not, schedules, routines, and their constant state of trying to unravel seem to be a normal part of this life. I also know that you can relate because school season or not, there is a universal law that is in work in all of us and within all things under the sun. It's a law that tends away from order and toward a state of disorder. Clean a room, especially at my house. It will soon be messy. Buy a new home. We'll soon need fixing. Eat well and exercise, yet age will slowly take its effect no matter who you are. Things in this life, church, are always in a deteriorating state. Science would refer to this phenomenon as science people. I thought I'd I'd get a few more of those. Where's Chad? Where's Chad at? Entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics. Chad knows, right? The scientific observation that states that everything in our universe naturally tends towards more and more disorder, disorganization, and ultimately destruction. But in practical day-to-day living terms, we often just refer to this concept simply as life. For it does not take a leading scientist to see this law at work in so many areas of life and of reality. It seems that the world is often just on the fringe of succumbing to this law completely where the various forms of disorder seem as if they are about to engulf and devour all that is proper and orderly around us. Even now, the talks of natural disaster, terrorism, nuclear warfare, all loom on the fringes of our very existence. This earth, this universe, this reality church has been tainted by the effects of sin. And sin as James tells us in James 1, ultimately leads to death. For where disorder begins, death is ultimately waiting at the finish line. I firmly believe, church, that if it were not for God's common grace and his hand over the earth, entropy entropy would fully devour all of us. It is only by the hand of God that the world is able to be maintained and continued. And this, as we know through Scripture, is ultimately for the purpose of the elect to be able to be called to repentance, called to faith, ultimately through the gospel of Christ. And so, church, by God's grace, the world carries on. A world that is at times marked with much disorder and destruction, yet always sprinkled with a dash of God's peace and grace. This, in fact, as we speak of it in these terms, is actually a snapshot of the gospel of Christ, which we as believers cling so dearly to. Paul says in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Thus, Thus the disorder we see around us, church, namely the fact that all that we see in this life is marked by brokenness, and in one way or another, it is on its path towards some form of demise, can all be summed up in one central Very important and very fretful word, sin. Disorder leads to brokenness. Brokenness leads to those within that brokenness to deal with the consequences of that which is broken. For sin is what is at the core of any and all suffering that has ever existed by any human throughout all of human history. This law church, this reality, is a very important and pertinent observation. For this is a reality that is seen by all, Christian and not, 
Disorder leads to deterioration. Deterioration leads ultimately to death. Plants and animals are born and die. Structures are created only to succumb to the elements. The days of our planet, even, are numbered. In fact, our very sun, the light-giving force that shone on the face of the Israelites and continues even now out our door to light our days, is losing energy and will one day burn out. Everything that, we, everything that we see in this world, everything, is subject to the effects of sin and will one day, at least in this life, come to an end. As Christians, this is exceptionally important because not only do we see the world in this state moving towards disorganization or disorder and ultimately death on multiple levels, in contrast, we know the true reality behind the seen reality. That there is a spiritual world that is waging war between forces of good and evil as God sovereignly works out his plans and ways to bring about an ultimate victory over all that which is evil. And this also, church, is why the words that I have spoken up to this point, though sad, though possibly fearful or fretful, ultimately do not lead us to a state of depression, fear, or hopelessness. Because this reality is what has been revealed to us throughout our study in the book of Revelation. As we receive a VIP backstage look at how reality is truly working its way out under the sovereign hand of God. For reality as we see it looks distorted. It looks disorganized. But it also looks as if it's leading headlong towards destruction. And through the book of Revelation, we know that this is not the case. For the book of Revelation reminds us that as believers, we get a glimpse of the spiritual workings behind the scene of what the true and final outcome of this world is to be. This world that we live in, church, it's not the way it was supposed to be. Remember that. That is central to the message that I have for you today. This world, as we live in it now in this very moment, is not the way that it is supposed to be. The life we live, the life we live in now, has been marred and tainted by sin. This is the reason why Christ had to come to church, had to come to the church, for the church, to pay for sin and purchase back the people of God from this tight grip that sin had upon them. And it is this church that brings us to our text for today. To be honest, I really didn't plan on my sermon matching up so closely to that which Pastor Joe uh, was taking us through in Revelation 11. But it did, and for that I am thankful. And so we will go now to look more closely at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And as usual, I would first like to set the context. Every time that I preach, I like to give a little bit of context for where we're at and what is going on. And so in the book of Romans, Paul, who is the author as he goes through the first eight chapters of his book, these first eight chapters are really broken into three main parts. First, Paul establishes the reality and effects of sin and everyone's need for a savior from sin. He does this in chapters one through three. Second, Paul goes to show that the only solution to escape the effects of sin is justification through faith in Christ alone. Chapters 3 showing this, and then 4 giving the example of Abraham. And then third, Paul shares with the reader the freedom that now exists as a result of salvation in Christ alone. He starts this in chapter 5, and he goes all the way through into chapter 8. 
chapters 5 through 8 are broken really into four parts in which freedom is given. Chapter 5, Paul discusses the freedom that we have now from the wrath of God. Chapter 6, Paul talks about the freedom that we now possess from the effects of sin and sin in this life, or at least the beginning stages. The next one, the third one, is the freedom that we have from the law itself. He does this in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, Paul discusses the total freedom that exists for the believer, that we are free even from the grip of death itself. And it is here in the middle of chapter 8 that Paul shares the total and complete freedom, again, that has existed. So let's take some time to look more closely and specifically exactly what Paul is showing in these particular verses in the middle of chapter 8 as we start first in verse 18. Follow along with me if you would like, church, as again I am going through Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says in verse 18, that he considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, re- to be revealed in us. Now, note here that Paul does not say that the sufferings in this life are not legitimate. He does not say that they're not difficult. He does not say that they're real. He does not say that they will not test us as a child of God down to our very core. He simply says that he does not consider, he does not ponder, he does not reason that these sufferings are worth, are worthy of being compared to the glory that is to come. Paul was very aware of the sufferings in this life, for he himself had endured much suffering in his life and would ultimately ultimately be martyred for his faith. Paul acknowledged suffering in many of his writings, but it is here in verse 18 that Paul simply states that he does not consider that the sufferings that he or anyone endures are able to be compared to that which is to come. Verse 19, Paul tells us that all of creation eagerly and anxiously, eagerly and anxiously awaits and longs for the revealing that is to come. Here, the physical creation is personified as a person with an outstretched neck, looking up, anxiously searching the horizon for that which it is awaiting. Creation was negatively and completely affected when Adam and Eve rebelled. We know this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Thus, all of creation will ultimately be restored upon the return of Christ, obviously except for the rebellious angels and unbelieving humans, but there is a complete restoration that will take place. For the term that is used in this verse, verse 19, revealing means to pull back the curtain so as to disclose or inform. It is also the title of the last book of the New Testament known as the Apocalypse, or as we know it more commonly, Revelation. Thus, Paul had in mind much of what we are learning and reflecting on in the book of Revelation as God protects and preserves his people through the sinful state of observable reality. So as we wait for it to be revealed, that revelation that we are awaiting is the one that we are already getting a glimpse of now through the book of Revelation. And this is also why Paul concludes verse 19, referring to us as the sons of God, because this was a common familial familial metaphor, ultimately that was used to describe Christians or God's people. Continuing on in verse 20, Paul says something quite a bit unique 
and something that must be properly and carefully understood as we look at it because it could easily be taken out of context and misunderstood. Paul says that creation was subjected to futility, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. From this, we must draw, again, a very important point, a very important conclusion, that it was actually God himself who subjected physical creation to futility. But why did he do this? Two quick reasons. One, because of human rebellion. God is sovereign over sin, though he is not the cause of it. And two, it is an attempt to turn mankind to himself. As mankind lives out in this futility, God is using it for his means to draw people to himself. Thus, this delicate yet clear teaching found in Scripture, that God, in fact, was the one behind the fall of creation, lest he not truly be God, is a very important and sometimes potentially confusing one. And though this theology of, is really of immense importance, I really don't have the time to fully and completely explain it right now. If I had the time, I would. So instead, if you have any specific questions on this topic specifically ones that are very complex and difficult and confusing, um, I will just defer you to Pastor Joe, because I'm sure he will <laughs> gladly answer them for you. When I wrote this, I assumed he'd be sitting right there. but So he's listening right now. He's laughing wherever, where, wherever you are, Joe. <laughs> but on a serious note, church, this purposeful futility is only for a specific and preordained period of time. God is sovereign over even this time period. Redeemed humanity has a promised future, both bodily and worldly. God foreknew Adam's rebellion. He allowed it to occur, and he chose to work with fallen mankind in a fallen world, in a fallen state. This is not the world that God intended it to be, but this is also not the world that it will one day be when God comes back for its full consummation. Continuing on in verse 21, Paul states that creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. Sorry, I just have to make a quick adjustment. Okay. Nature, in its purest form, in fact, will be part of eternity. Heaven is coming to reunite to recreated to a recreated earth. The future will be a return to Eden's bliss, fellowship between God and mankind, individual to individual, mankind to animals, and mankind to the earth. The Bible begins in Revelation with God, mankind, and the animals in fellowship and harmony in a garden setting. And as most of us know and will soon see through the preaching of the word, that the Bible also ends in a very similar way, Revelation 21 to 22. Furthermore, the text says that creation will return into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In verse 14, believers are called the sons of God. In verse 16, they are called the children of God. In verse 17, they are called the heirs of God. We go to verse 18, the eschatological glory of God is revealed to believers, but it is here now in verses 19 through 20 that creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God because it all of it, complete, will share their eschatological glory in verse 21. This restoration of creation, especially humans, will allow the original purpose of creation to be fulfilled. God and humanity made in his image will be an intimate fellowship for eternity. God will come back. He will restore and make all things new. 
Then in verse 22, Paul again speaks of the whole creation groaning, mirroring the language found in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 29 and Isaiah 54, which was the Old Testament reading for today. In these passages of scripture, the land of Israel mourns because of the desolation that is caused by human sin. According to Paul, creation is suffering the pains of childbirth. In Jewish circles, this concept was often called the pains of the new age, also referred to in Mark 13.8. And the dawning of the new day of righteousness. This is the day that we are currently awaiting even now, church. But it will not be without its problems. We know that through the teaching of scripture, that the moral and spiritual conditions of this fallen planet will become worse and worse, as we have seen and will continue to see through the seven seals, trumpets, and the bowls found in Revelation chapter 5, verses 18. But it is all not without hope, church. It is all not without hope. Moving forward, in verse 23, Paul again uses the phrase, we ourselves. Found in verse 23, Paul says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And he's, again, in reference to the groanings that he speaks of. But there's really three groanings. You need to make note of the different groanings. Paul does not just say it as we ourselves who groans. There's three of them if we backtrack just a little bit. Because as we go and we see in verse 22, and ending in verse 26, the groanings, first of all, are of of creation. He says that creation groans, verse 22. Verse 23, he says that believers groan. And then three, he says, even the spirit itself groans. All three show the unified effects and pain that sin has brought to all creation, spilling over even to the creator himself. All of us cry in pain as the pains of childbirth come, knowing that the full birth, the full consummation is ahead of us. But it is a unique perspective to see that creation itself us as his people, and even the Spirit himself groan in awaiting this. The text uses the phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit, in verse 23, which is used in modern Greek for an engagement ring. We understand uh, first fruits as being that little bit which is given to us, that promise that is given to us. For the Spirit is the first fruit of this new age, as Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. Believers, as God's children, even now experience something of the joys of heaven by means of the Holy Spirit who dwells with them and in them. It is also part of why good things can still happen and why life is still a very, very good thing. This is the already but not yet phenomenon that takes place. It is the tension of the overlapping of these two ages. Part of it is here, part of it is not. Part of us is in the kingdom, part of us is not. Believers are citizens of heaven, yet also left to be dwellers on earth. We experience the groanings of pains of this life, yet joyful as we anticipate the new birth. Even now we are engaged, currently awaiting our full and complete marriage to our husband, Christ himself. Continuing on in verse 23, Paul says that we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons. Adoption is often Paul's favorite uh, familial metaphor for salvation. For believers, salvation is a process that starts with an initial decision of repentance and faith, which brings them into the family of God and grows over time more and more into a Christ-likeness. Though believers will not be fully saved until that resurrection day, when we will finally and fully have the redemption 
the true and complete redemption of our body. We currently await that time, growing more and more like him, until, we, until he comes back for his people and calls us home. And this term in this verse, church, the term redemption literally means to buy back, to purchase back that which was originally God's. This concept was used in the Old Testament to describe someone being set free from slavery by a relative, Goel in the Hebrew. If you've heard that before, it's because it is the same concept that was used in the book of Ruth for the kinsman redeemer. And it ultimately came to be used uh, metaphorically for God's deliverance of God's people from slavery. It is a picture that is found in multiple places of Scripture. It is the story almost of the totality of Scripture beginning to end that God has a plan to redeem his people and to make all things right. Thus, church, we wait patiently for this redemption of our complete and glorified bodies and the recreation of the heavens and the earth. Continuing in verse 24, Paul tells us that it is in hope that we have been saved. Though the New Testament uses several tenses of the word saved to describe salvation, some past tense, some present tense, some future tense, this tense refers primarily to our past salvation, the salvation that began with faith but will one day conclude fully and consummated glory. Finally, beginning at the, earth, uh, at the end of verse 24 and going into verse 25, Paul tells us that hope that is seen is actually not hope at all. For the word hope that Paul uses is a word that was often associated with the full consummation of the believer's faith. This can be expressed as God's complete, uh, complete glory, uh, eternal life, ultimate salvation, or the second coming, none of which have fully come to pass, which is why it is a hope and a hope that is not seen. Thus, the consummation that is in view is seen as certain, but the time element involved is ultimately future and unknown, thus unseen. Therefore, Paul states that we endure in this hope with perseverance. We endure with it now in perseverance. A believer's salvation is in the process of maturity and will one day be fully consummated. Perseverance, therefore, is what is needed in this life to reach the full and complete prize of which we all await. The complete and full consummation of all things. Church, when God finished his creation in Genesis, it was a good creation, Genesis 1.31. But today, it is a groaning creation. There is suffering, there is death, there's pain, all of which is, of course, the result of Adam's sin. Note the words that Paul uses within Romans 8, 18, 25 to describe the current state of creation now as we live in it. Romans 8, 18, he refers to it as vanity. Romans 8, 20, he refers to it as bondage. Romans 8, 21, he refers to it as decay. And again in Romans 8, 21, he refers to it in pain. However, this groaning, this pain, this suffering, it is not a useless thing. Paul compared it to a woman in labor. There is pain. There most certainly is pain. But the pain will end when the child is delivered. One day creation will be delivered. And the groaning creation will become a glorious creation. 
This is why the believer must not focus on today's sufferings. He must look forward to tomorrow's glory. Question I have for you, church, a question I have for myself, question I, in fact, have for anybody who is listening who knows Christ is a pretty simple one, yet a complex one, yet one that probably requires much, much pondering and self-reflection. My question is this. Church, what do we expect in this life? What do we really expect in this life, out of this life, from this life? What do we expect to receive? What do we expect to go through? Now, I understand, church, that this question can potentially be a bit offensive or maybe even be seen a little bit out of context. However, out of nearly a decade and spending time with other believers and Christians in multiple contexts, as a fellow Christian, as a minister, as a leader, as a counselor, as an elder, I've seen a common theme throughout all my encounters with everybody I've come across, with every other human that I've engaged with. My observation is this. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's a little. Sometimes it's quick and sometimes it lasts a lifetime. Sometimes it's isolated. Sometimes it spans across the entire continent. Sometimes it lasts a lifetime. Sometimes it ends in death. But however big, small, long, short, or wide, we all suffer in this life. But so often, when we experience suffering, we act as if something has went horribly wrong, which, in many cases, it has. Sin has went wrong. We know that. We know the theology behind it. But that's not often the case in many people's minds. We seem to think that suffering is not the norm. Vice versa. We must have done something wrong. We must have done something. There, there must be a other force at work. But Peter tells us, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering is a part of the reality of this life. Part of this reality, part of the reality of the flesh. It is inescapable, uh, inescapable is also inevitable. Church, please understand, in no way am I minimizing the effects, difficulties, and legitimacy of one's suffering. I am merely exegeting that which God has shown us to be true on the topic of suffering. For I know there is much suffering that has been endured in the midst of our body, and how one responds to trials, tragedy, and tribulation can vary, and only God himself can truly understand the depths of one's heart as he or she endures trials and tribulation. But I would encourage you to ponder the question, have you placed too much emphasis on this world and on your flesh rather than on that of the promises of God? What do you really expect in this life? If we expect God to shield us from all forms of trials and tribulations, then we will, as Peter tells us, respond in confusion and frustration for if we have improper expectations, then our reaction when those expectations are not met will themselves be improper. Therefore, what Romans 8, 18 through 25 gives us is a very unique and interesting perspective when it comes down to suffering 
in this life. First, it shows us that suffering is inevitable. But second, as Paul has shown us, it shows that the trials in suffering that we go through are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Paul doesn't negate the fact of the suffering. He doesn't delegitimize it. He simply says one very simple, clear thing, that it is not worthy to be compared to that which is to come. Let us not lose focus, church, when trials come upon us. For Christ knows our pain. He has redeemed us from it. And we patiently await his return to finish what he started. We are now in that place groaning. We are in the state of childbirth, church. Remember that. We are in the state of childbirth, knowing that pain will disappear when the new birth comes and all things are new. In concluding, church, there are three points of application that I would like to draw out from our text today. The first point of application is this, that we will suffer. We will suffer, church. And you think, way to go, good application, right? We will suffer, church, but it is never without purpose, and we are never alone in it. It is not meaningless. There is no meaningless suffering that we endure on this earth. We should expect it. We should learn to run to God in it, not away from him. And we need to learn for it to drive us closer to our Savior as we consider it, as we reflect upon it and upon the promises that he has given us. For God is sovereign over all, even our suffering. God is present in all. God understands our suffering. He is empathetic with our response to it. Let us run to the open arms of the only one who can ever fully understand the true depths of our own individual sufferings and our own community sufferings. Whatever the state it is, Christ himself is the one who can bring that. Second is this, that suffering, trials, tragedy, tribulation, whatever form it takes, is part of our earthly groaning while we're here on earth. It's part of our birth pains as we await the glory of our future creation and glorified bodies. We all will suffer at some point in our life, but let us learn to suffer well. It does not mean that we will do it with a fabricated or pseudo form of happiness. Rather, we will do it in remembrance and reflection upon all that God has promised us in his word, being reminded of the fact that this world is not our home. And remember the words of Paul, that no matter what the suffering in this life, it is not comparable of that which is to come. This is probably one of the most central points of so much of the counseling that we do here at Emmaus, that we forget. We forget what God said we would go through, and we forget what he has given us as we go through it. The Lord is faithful. The Lord provides. The Lord is able to rescue us. Scripture is filled with this. And I pray, Lord, I pray church to our Lord that we would run to him and be reminded of these realities, these promises. Lastly, third and final point, we have hope in that which we do not see. Because what we see, church, is a broken, disorderly, and hurting world in desperate need of saving. Sometimes we're unfortunate enough to be shielded from that. Sometimes we're in a place of abundance, financial security. Sometimes we're in a place where much of what is going on in life is good, and praise the Lord for that. 
but it is often unfortunate because the temptation there is to forget what is really in front of us. Sometimes we think that a bit of heaven has come down to us and we hold too tightly to that, which scripture makes it very clear that this is not our home, for we are awaiting the full consummation. But as a general rule, what we do see is a broken and disorderly and hurting world. But we know, church, yet we do not see, though we know it, is that Christ is the one who is behind it all, awaiting in his ordained time, the time of the Father, to return for his people and to fully restore all things. For this is what Christ promised to the disciples the very night before he himself would go through and experience his torturous death on the cross to atone for the sins of his people. And it is why week after week we meet in this humble place, in our humble bodies, on this humble earth, awaiting the day for God to again make all things new. In conclusion, I would like to read you the very words, actually, of Christ on that fateful night before he would go to the cross and atone for the sins of his people. The last words that he really gave specifically to his disciples and to us. His words are found in John 16, verses 32 through 34. Christ said this to his disciples. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, Christ says, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These words, church, again, were the very last words Christ gave to his disciples before he prayed and was betrayed into the hands of his captors. Which is why his words are so bittersweet as we read them. For on one side, they were the very last words of Christ. Very last spoken words before he would go and begin the, the tortures that he endured and then ultimately his death on the cross. They were the last words to the disciples. They were the last words to us. But on the other side, these words are so sweet because they were the last words of Christ. They were the last words to us. They were a promise that he has overcome the world. And he tells us to take heart and to rest in them. They are the words which we patiently cling to and hold steadfastly to. The words that exist in a reality that we cannot see with our eyes, yet we patiently endure for our Savior will return and fulfill all of his promises, which is working out even now in that which we cannot see. They are the words which we hold on to until the time when our Savior will return, when we shall see him again face to face. As Revelation 21.4 states, And he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things all have passed away. Behold, all things will be new. For this we await. For this we endure all that the Sovereign Lord finds fitting to allow in our life. And in this church, it is in this that we hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your words of encouragement. It is in you that we hope, Father. 
I am compelled, Lord, to pray for those who are suffering, Lord. Whatever form that it is, Lord, there are many areas and ways, Lord, in which we struggle financially with health, with life in general, with thoughts, with, with hindrances, with illness, with disease, with death. Various forms of suffering, Lord, none of them go beyond that which you have made clear to us in your word. May we cling to you, Father, in all times and in all times. If we are enduring suffering now, Lord, I pray that we would rest fully upon your promises, Lord, and find that joy, that peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord, that we know that which awaits us, Lord. For those of us, Lord, who maybe aren't at that place, Lord, help us when suffering does come our way to endure it well, to suffer well, to not respond as if something strange were happening to us and that we would be tempted to curse you, but that we would rest fully in you. May we go to your word, may we cling to your word, may we cling to your promises, Lord, for they are that which is of utmost importance in this life, Lord. Paul tells us that if the resurrection is not real, Lord, our hope is in vain. It all hinges, Lord, knowing this, that Christ resurrected from the grave is at the right hand of the Father, and we wait for him, that he is winning the battle even now and will come and return for his people to make all things new. Thank you again, Lord, for your word, for your son. It's your name we pray. Amen.